Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the show, you can always give me a call on the listener hotline, that number 303-832-0217. That number is also in the description of this show, as are all of my contact links. And the contact link for somebody that I have on the show today, uh, because I'm going to be visiting with someone way smarter than me. Today, I'm going to have on the show Dr. Celine Vetter. And Dr. Vetter is the lead author of a study called A Chronobiological Evaluation of the Acute Effects of Daylight Saving Time on Traffic Accident Risk. I got it right. Uh, It is a very timely topic since the fall time change is just upon us here at the end of October. And I think the effects of the time change are always bad on us. I I don't like the time change. It's uh, it it really messes up people's sleep habits and driving habits anyway. uh, And, you know, the sun, when when you see it in the morning and afternoon for the morning and afternoon drive, I really wish they would just pick a time and go with it. But uh, (laughs) I believe the effects of the change are actually worse in the spring uh, than they are in the fall. But anyway, we'll find out more for sure from Dr. Vetter in just a minute all about uh, the time change and how it affects our uh, crash risk. Uh, In my hyper-local newspaper that's tossed into my driveway every every week for free, it's called the Castle Pines News Press. There's a columnist in there, and and one of the columnist article caught my attention. It's from Craig Marshall Smith, and I actually tried to get him on the show one time about rude airline passengers, but he uh, declined to declined to come on. Uh, I don't think this was his uh, chosen format that he he wanted to to come on. Anyway, this uh, column deals with what we all deal with: drivers not stopping at stop signs. It seems like stop signs are now more of an optional sign. There's one right down at the corner of my street here, and the kids especially, they they barely even slow down when they're making the right turn through the stop sign and then head up the hill right past my house. Uh, anyway, this, uh, this is what uh, Craig says. Have you noticed those new red octagonal signs they've been putting up around town? I'm not sure what their purpose is. Maybe you do. If so, please let me in on it. Each of the signs has four white letters on it, S-T-O-N-P. I figure it must be some kind of acronym, but but what? Maybe sleep tonight on pillows? It seems like a lot of money was spent on something that no one pays attention to. There's another thing that bothers me. They put them at most intersections right there on the corners. They distract drivers who slow down to read what they say and cause accidents or near accidents. Living near a high school, I see teenagers do it all the time. Instead of sailing through an intersection, they hesitate. I think it's because they're curious about the sign. Sick Texans often puke. (laughs) Teenage drivers shouldn't have to try to figure out what the meaning of a sign is while they're on the way to something important. As I said, all of the signs are red. That makes them stand out. It's one more strike against them because, as we know, red is an aggressive color. It stands out. A friend of mine who believes we have visitors is convinced the signs are intended for them. And it's an acronym for Sluve Tapolu Umdu Pepitone. <laughs> he says that's don't forget Martians, your second cup of coffee is free at Roswell restaurants. The signs add visual clutter 
just where we don't need it, at busy intersections. It's tough enough there already. Since I love ciphers, I tried a couple of simple letter substitutes with my decoder ring, but what I came up with didn't make any sense. Lucky Strike Means Fine Tobacco was one of them, and 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. I must have done something wrong. Uh, that, I believe, is the in the Beatles song. Uh, anyway, I <laughs> this opinion column from Craig Marshall Smith in my local Castle Pines News Press continues. There's another one of these intersection signs I don't understand. There are fewer of them, and that's nice, but the meaning of the letters on them is lost to me and everyone else. Y-I-E-L-N-D. My friend thinks it's just another attempt to communicate with our friends from outer space. What do these letters mean, I asked. He told me it was an intergalactic marketing plea. Well, what is it? Buy your muffler from us, not the Chinese. I'm all for trying to boost the U.S. economy, but why can't it be done somewhere else? Everyone knows that intersections are lively and at times entertaining areas where a lot of things can go wrong. If I'm going through an intersection and texting, I can't be bothered by a sign that's designed to appeal to little green men. I tried to get an answer from our traffic engineers, but they just laughed and said, you've got to be kidding. You and I know that things go on behind our backs all the time. There are subliminal messages everywhere. When someone in the government says a wet bird does not fly at night, it doesn't mean a wet bird does not fly at night. I dare you to put that in your Dakota ring. That again from Craig Marshall Smith. Uh, he says that he's an artist educator and Highlands Ranch resident. Uh, he can actually be reached at Craig Marshall Smith at Comcast.net if you wanted to send him your uh, comments about <laughs> his stop and yield article. I, 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 don't, I wonder if he actually did call uh, the local traffic engineers about that. Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, anyway, it's pretty funny. All right, for the longest time, I've been talking about the increased number of crashes that occur in the weeks right after the time change, especially in the spring. It happens every single year. Now we have a study. I mean, from official smart people that proves the time change is very bad on drivers. Some very smart researchers at the University of Colorado in Boulder looked into the spring time change and its effects on drivers and found a surge in fatal car crashes that happen right after the spring time change. The study is called a chronobiological evaluation of the acute effects of daylight saving time on traffic accident risk. And we are lucky enough to have one of the senior authors of this study, Dr. Celine Vetter, on the show today. Dr. Vetter, thank you for being here on the World Famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So we will get to the meat of the study here in just a minute. But what made you and the other team of researchers interested in studying the relationship between crashes and the time change? There have been a lot of legislative um initiatives lately surrounding daylight saving time and asking the question, you know, do should we get rid of the switch? What is the evidence behind perhaps getting rid of the switch and, and which way should we go? And so when we reviewed some of the evidence, it stood out to us that actually many of the studies looking at the traffic accident rates related to DST have been quite outdated, um, have have been very heterogeneous in findings, have had 
different statistical approaches and so and so we thought okay let's see if there is a if you know there is an extensive data set we could use and ask that question again do we do we see that increase in risk that some studies have seen but others have not now the lead sentence in your study it reads there is evidence that the spring daylight saving time transition acutely increases motor vehicle accident risk, which has been partly attributed to sleep deprivation and circadian misalignment. But right after that, there is much said about how the time change changes how we see daylight during the morning and evening commutes. So what do you yeah. think is more of a factor here in this crash risk, the disruption of the sleep or the change in the light? So I think it's it's both, and that's and that's one thing that our study tried to address more explicitly, and that hasn't been done before in in that explicit manner. Um, but what we do see is really that overall we see a change in in traffic accident risk that only happens in springtime. If it was only light. Um, we would actually expect things to to um, be visible in spring and fall because we basically change visibility during rush hours once in the morning and springtime, right? So you have more, um, you have less visibility in the morning, and then in springtime and fall, um, it goes the other way around. Um, and so what you would expect is that if it was only light that we that we need to worry about is that the entire increase associated with daylight saving time would be related to that morning increase in risk. But that's not what we see. We do see that this effect is actually observed throughout the day, and we see that it's more pronounced in the morning again, suggesting that it's a combined effect of visibility and increase in sleep deprivation and misalignment. We're speaking with Dr. Celine Vetter, Assistant Professor of Physiology and Researcher in Circadian Rhythms, Sleep Disruption, Light Exposure, Shift Work, Work Hours, Occupational Health at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder, and talking about how the time change affects how we drive and affects our crash risk. How did the research tie the number of fatal crashes, the increased oh. number, into the time change? So what we basically did is to take 22 years of data. There is an amazing resource um, that actually collects data on every fatal car crash in the U.S. It's called the U.S. Fatality Analysis Reporting System. Um, and we, we used this data set um, to basically ask, does DST in spring increase your risk of fatal car crashes? And we did that because there is evidence that it's especially the springtime change that disrupts your sleep and your circadian rhythms, not so much the fall one. And so we took 10 years before the, um, in 2007, the Energy Policy Act was, um, was enabled, and that meant that DST was extended. So instead of um, beginning the first Sunday in April, DST now starts the second Sunday in March. Um, 
And it ends later. It ends in November instead of in October. And so we wanted to to account for that. And so we took 10 years before the Energy Policy Act was um, enacted. We took the 10 years before that and the 10 years after that. Um, and so one of the questions we had was, well, if it's really DST <clears throat> in springtime, that is, you know, the factor driving that spike in accident risk and not some some spurious association due to weather, due to some other types of influences, um, then we should see that the spike in accident risk follows the time change, right, from the first Sunday in April to um, mid-March. And so we, we looked at the overall effect of DST and saw this modest association of 6% increase in risk of fatal accident risk overall. And then when we split it up into before 2007 and after 2007, we indeed saw that the, the spike in accident risk moved from April to March, exactly into that week after DST um, is observed. So that kind of gives us more confidence that it's really about DST and it's not about something else that happens at the same time. So it really, as you said, doesn't really matter when we do the shift. It is the shift that is the actual problem. It does actually, well, so you're right. It's the switch that is the problem. We do see a little bit of a higher risk in March. Um, and we think this is related again to the to the environmental light levels, and the weather could play into that as well. But overall, yes, we see that spike no matter what in April and in March. This is something that we can get rid of, right? Right, and and, and but as you know, if we never changed our our clocks, the way we measure time. We are going to see more daylight the closer we get to June 1st than we will closer to December 21st. So do you think changing it uh, so early has really thrown people off because we're still not ready to have that much light? I mean, when when we get into the spring, we're, we're we're ready for that light. The plants are ready for it. That's what makes the plants start to bud out and, and, to, and to change. Maybe if we pushed it back, maybe it would help us out a little bit. Um, so, so we still see that spike even before 2007. So I would think um, that there is still concern even if it's happening later. Um, the issue about DST as a whole um, is that it increases evening light exposure levels and it decreases morning light exposure levels. And we know from our circadian studies that morning light is really important to anchor us to the 24-hour day and regulate our physiology accordingly. And the more darkness we we experience in the morning, the more it can throw us off and the more we clash with our work hours, the harder it is to get up in the morning. Um, and the more sleep deprivation we see. So from that perspective, um, as chronobiologists, many of us actually favor um, standard time because it it keeps us brighter light in the morning um, and minimizes light at night and light in the evening, which actually pushes us later. And so again, this 
this makes it harder for us to get up in the morning, to go on with our lives, and to get enough sleep, which are all really important predictors for health and well-being. Yeah, we'll talk more about that coming up in just a little bit. We're speaking with Dr. Vetter, the senior author for a uh, study that came out called a chronobiological evaluation of the acute effects of daylight saving time on traffic accident risk. My guess, doctor, is that there is a greater risk in crashes, as you were just talking about with, with how the daylight really centers us, that there would be a greater risk then in crashes for the morning drivers after the time change rather than the drivers in the evening. Yeah, so we see that it's more pronounced in the morning. That's true. And so this is exactly that interaction I'm talking about, about the environmental light levels and the visibility that comes with it. Um, But we also think that the sleep and circadian deprivation and misalignment part plays into that because the, the increase in accident risk is actually visible throughout the day. So it's not driven entirely by light levels. How much lower is the risk, if, if you studied it, in the week two and week three and week four after the time change? So we didn't, we didn't look in the, in the weeks three and four. We looked in the week before and the week after. And all our analysis that we did was basically comparing the week after DST to all other weeks in the year. Um, but things don't really change if you if you change that reference, right? So if we look at the week before DST, we don't see a significant increase in traffic accident risk, as you would expect. Um, and that's kind of a control condition, if you want. Um, and And then we look in the week afterwards, and again, there is no increase in risk. But there is a consistent increase in risk in the week after DST. So... It does, it does stand out compared to the week before and two weeks after, um, which, again, gives us confidence that this is a real effect and not driven by weather or light alone. Do you see a difference in the risk between time zones? So is it the same for drivers on the East Coast as it is for us in the mountain time zone, as it is for the folks on the Western uh, time zones? So what we do see is that um, the further west you go into your time zone, so whether you're in mountain time, Pacific time, eastern time, the further west you go, um, the higher the risk increase. And what we think is going on is that the further west you live, the further, the longer it takes for the sun time to match the time on your clock, right? Because sun is moving from east to west. And so there is some data suggesting on a population level that people living further west in the time zone are more likely to be sleep deprived and misaligned um, than people living at the at the outer edge of their time zone in the very east. And so when we look in five-degree kind of steps, we see that there is a, a continuous increase in traffic accident risk across the time zone um, related to DST. So living further west, f- 
further accentuates that risk that's associated with DST. That's interesting. In yeah, that's very interesting because I would have thought it would be different within, not just within each individual time zones. I, I was just wondering if it was also the same for the entire Eastern time zone compared to the entire Western time zone, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. We didn't look at that. I can't, I can't speak towards that. Um, yeah, I don't have the data to answer that question, you we could though. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Well, I'm giving you some yeah. ideas here, Doc. I'm, you yeah. know, I'm just, uh, I'm an idea guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I love there, that. There, there's some more yeah. research no, for you great. that'll keep you busy for the next couple of years. And, and you know, there are definitely there are definitely differences by state and where you are in the country in terms of how many people live there, you know, and and how much traffic there is. So, so those are all factors that contribute to variability in the signal. Well, and what about a state like Arizona uh, or even Idaho? Arizona, not all, all not all the uh, entire state of Arizona changes with the time change. And, and in uh, Idaho, I think the time zone in northern Idaho actually goes east-west instead of north-south. So you drive north to northern Idaho and you're in a whole day, and you're in the Pacific time zone. You drive south, and you're in the Mountain time zone. So I'm sure that messes with those people. <laughs> Something crazy. Yeah, and so what we did was to really like geotag each specific accident um, and where it occurred by latitude and longitude, and basically mapped it into each of the specific time zones. What we also did: there are states that do not observe DST. Right, and so those were excluded from all our analysis. Of course, they were not enough accidents for us to use this as a reference. In case that was your next question, but um, so those states were taken out. But yeah, so we had a really high spatial resolution for kind of saying where the accidents took place. Well, what about other countries? Other nations do have similar time changes as we do. Uh, do they have? a similar increased risk in crashes and fatal crashes? Um, so I, you know, I, I'm from Europe originally, and, and I, I, I'm not aware of, like, such a big database that would give you the power to look at that with so many acts. We had about 730,000 accidents that were recorded over those 22 years. Um, so that really gives you a lot of power to actually look at, you know, time of day effects, week effects, um, questions like how does this change within a time zone. Um, I'm not, I'm not aware of similarly powerful databases in, in, for example, Europe. Um, but you're right. Like there's a there's a huge variability. I think it's kind of helpful to do this kind of study in the U.S. because we have you know similar levels of where our cars are in terms of technology, how the regulations work, things like that. So it's kind of an advantage from an experimental point of view. Um, I'm not, I'm, most of the studies have been done in the U.S. Indeed. Hey, there's more work for you right there. Boom. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what to do with all my time. 
I'm so, I'm so, <laughs> oh, man. All right, we're speaking with Dr. Celine Better, assistant professor uh, of uh, physiology and researcher in circadian rhythm, sleep disruption at the University of Colorado in Boulder. You can follow her on Twitter, at Dr. Celine Vetter. So let's look at some of the sleep issues. You've done extensive research on night shift workers looking for a correlation to heart disease and into sleep, and that if you sleep too much or too little, it can actually affect your heart. If you work shift work, it can affect your heart. It, 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 I, I could tell you anecdotally that, that I'm in much worse physical shape, uh, physically and emotionally, working the early morning hours that I do than if I wasn't. So I'm sure that affects the way I drive uh, both in the morning and in the evening. Yeah. No, you're right. And so, and I think, you know, what is, what is, um, really great to see is that increasing awareness for the importance of sleep and the body clock um, and how it plays into into our health and our well-being. And everybody knows that they get grumpy when they don't sleep enough, but we now actually have data showing what the underlying physiology is for these types of things. And we know that if you, if you sleep too little, um, that's typically bad for many physiological outcomes such as heart disease, such as your risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, we know that your food choices are affected and that this in the long run can increase your risk of obesity and things like that. So it's it's becoming more and more obvious how important sleep and, and circadian rhythms, which really go hand in hand um, in the real world, how important they are and and for the early types it's much harder to work during the night than the early morning shift well i i wake up usually around two fifteen in the morning uh then, oh wow yeah then hit the road and come in i leave my house at uh, just before three we actually have a morning show meeting at three thirty uh here in the newsroom with everybody involved and then we start our broadcast at four thirty. and i i can tell you anecdotally that the the shift that I'm on, it makes me more hungry. It makes me grumpy. Um, I have to really fight that, especially in the evening when I'm with my kids and with my wife. Uh, I'm tired all the time. I, I, can, I know that I lose concentration and it's harder for me to concentrate, especially oh. when I'm trying to read uh, anything uh, like your study. I was trying to read through that and then I have to just step back for a minute and then regroup and then get back at it. Yeah. No, this is this is extremely early. And how much sleep do you get when you have to get up at two fifteen? I usually go to bed by seven thirty or so, eight o'clock maybe at the latest. So we're looking at okay. six, six and a half maybe. Yeah, so that's actually that, that's too little. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends seven to nine hours for adults, um, if you can. But we know that there is a huge variability in in sleep needs in individuals. Um, most of our big data studies don't really reflect that sleep need very well currently. Um, other factors play a huge role too, right? How well do you sleep during those six hours? Sleep quality is is a huge independent predictor of of health and well-being. If you sleep well, um, it, it can it can help you to bring down the risk of many of these adverse outcomes. Um, and then, you know, how, how regular do you sleep like that? Like, do you sleep the same schedule every night? Or do you bounce around? Do you have to bounce around? 
Yeah, unfortunately, Which I have to bounce to around be. in the weekends because then uh, I, I, yeah. I, you know, I just want to stay up with my family and watch a movie, and then by eight o'clock, I'm, yeah. I'm dead tired and falling asleep while everybody else is watching the movie. Yeah, and and you don't want to be the boring guy who goes to sleep <laughs> early, right? So that's the issue when you when you have to wake up very early during the week. Um, also, when you're just naturally an early type often your social jet lag, your so-called social jet lag, which is this misalignment um, between your sleep timing on work days and free days, um, becomes greater on weekends because you want to be part of the social events that take place. You want to you wanna be involved. Um, so there are different reasons underlying why you are bouncing around. Um, but the issue oftentimes is related to work, right? And when, when do you have to be at work? Um, it's not you and your body who decide when you can wake up and should wake up. Nobody would, would just stop a washing machine in the middle of its program. Um, but we do that with alarm clocks all the time. We stop the sleep process, even though we know that it's so important to, to sleep and, and finish your sleep phases throughout the night. Would you be in favor of doing away with a time change or just leaving it all the time on standard time or leave it all the time on spring forward all year long? So I, um, I very much endorse standard time year-round. Um, we, we know that the switch by itself doesn't really help anything. It was introduced due to energy considerations. Um, actually, it had been intro- like we have had permanent daylight saving time in the U.S. and in Russia, and it's always been abolished because a lot of people have been complaining, and there there is anecdotal evidence of increases in traffic accident risks than in the winter and pedestrian a- accidents. So. I think you know we we know our our study and with the whole body of literature that's out there overall I think it's very clear that we don't need to switch it's it's increasing the risk of workplace injury it's increasing the risk of fatal traffic accidents um there's one study from last year I think that even showed that your um your sentence in court tends to be higher for the same type of, um, um, how do you say, the same type of um, crime, right? Of crime. Of yeah. crime. Uh, you get you get a longer sentence, and this auth- and the authors of this study um, on the first Monday after DST compared to every other Monday in the year, and the authors of the study suggest that this is due to. You know, you process information differently when you're more sleep-deprived and misaligned, and you might actually process things also emotionally differently, and they, they think this is how this increase in, in, <laughs> in the severity of sentences um, is happening. And so we, we, we see this whole body of literature really pointing towards that we should get rid of, of this switch. And now the big question is, do we want permanent DST or permanent standard time? And as a chronobiologist, um, I'm really worried about permanent daylight saving time, especially in western part of the time zones, where it's already much later daytime, 
if you look at your clock, right, at 8 a.m. at one at the eastern part of the time zone, you will always have daylight. In the West, not, and this is especially hard in winter, right? If we were staying on daylight saving time in winter, you would have really dark mornings, sometimes until 8, 9 a.m. in the morning. So school kids would go to school in the dark every morning and stay in the dark for several hours. Um, and so, again, from a chronobiological perspective, this this actually contributes to sleep deprivation and circadian misalignment, which are predictors of obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and emotional regulation issues, and, and many other things. We know about seasonal affective disorder, which you know can be really helped with morning light. So we would make these things worse. So from that perspective, I very much endorse permanent standard time. I've always thought it would be a great idea, instead of just going forward for the one hour or backward for the one hour, let's cut it in half. Let's make it a half hour for the entire country and then be good with that. Either that idea or, Dr. Vetter, how about this? We we have a, a worldwide conference, and everybody picks what we should be, and then redo the time zone so and redo the time thing so we're all on a perfect sleep time zone. How about that? That I, I, I love that idea, and there are actually people out there who have proposed optimized maps for sleep and circadian alignment because you're right, in some time zones, people are very far away from some time just because their country is in a position in their time zone that's so far removed. Think about Spain. Right, so the Spaniards are very far away from um, from some time in their time zone, and so so yeah, there are definitely people out there who are putting this forward. Um, I think why why have a switch if if there is no real benefit to it? You know, we yeah. don't have an economical benefit. There is no energy related benefit. I wouldn't bother with it. To be honest, like so, no half hour time switch there. So basically, me. that's your prescription, though. Your prescription is really to get the world together, pick a time zone that works for everybody and their sleep patterns, and and boom, you're going to write out the prescription for everybody. We, we're not doing one time zone for everybody because that's a really bad idea as well, right? We don't want people to to live in darkness. We want people to actually be exposed to their natural light-dark cycle as much as we can. Go outside, be connected to the 24-hour rhythmicity that your body has evolved in. Dr. Vetter, the assistant professor of uh, physiology, researcher in circadian rhythm and sleep disruption at the University of Colorado uh, in Boulder. You're also the senior author for the uh, chronobiological evaluation of the acute effects of daylight saving time on traffic accident risk. That is the name of the study. Thank you so much for being here and explaining all uh, all of your research. Again, you can get that research paper if you are really interested from the link I put in the description of this show. Like most research papers, it's long, it's technical, so put your thinking caps on if you want to read it uh, next week on the show. I'm also going to be talking to somebody pretty smart, uh, Diane Dandenu. Diane is the CEO of iPower Alliance, and we're going to be talking about the future of charging your electric car away from home.
home charging is going to be the way to go most of the time, but there will be many times you'll be away from home and you need to charge, or maybe you don't live in a place where it's easy to charge from home. So how and where will we do all of that? I'm not pushing for electric cars here. I'm a pragmatic person and electric cars are coming and like it or not, I I love my Volt actually. It's just, uh, I just took it in for the uh, oil change, by the way, for the generator that's in it. And that's what I like about the the Volt is that it has the generator in it. So I don't have to range anxiety and really worry about where I'm going to charge it up if I'm on a road trip. Um, But most of us will, because that is not an option, having a generator in your car uh, like I do. Um, but I had to take it in for the 90,000-mile service, and uh, they, they just did uh, the oil change and a couple other things. I'm still on the original brakes at 90,000 miles, and they said they are just a touch worn. And you could probably go at least another 90,000 miles on these brakes. I was dumbfounded when I heard that. Because um, the overall maintenance on this car is minimal at best. I mean, really, that's one of the reasons I bought it in the first place, because I got kept got, getting so sick of taking my play, uh, my car, my other car, uh, over to the uh, grease monkeys and, and oil change places and getting my oil changed every three to 5,000 miles because I'm driving 1,000 uh, miles a month uh, or a little bit more. So it was just getting to me. And, and that was one of the reasons I, I invested. I investigated looking at getting an electric car and the Volt was a, was a good option for me. Anyway, um, so, the, you know, the maintenance issue is really a nice benefit of having one of these electric cars. And, uh, and, I, and I don't have to think about how and, uh, how and when and how often I have to charge it since it has the generator in it, but everybody else will. And you can't just run out of charge and expect AAA to show up with a gallon of gas to get you to the next gas station down the road. You're going to have to plan your fueling. Anyway, we're going to speak to uh, Diane Dandineau uh, uh, with uh, iPower Alliance in the, uh, the next episode. Anyway, um, until next time, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Luba, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and, as always, happy motoring.